When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Melman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Annual killifishes are beyond fascinating for me. Not only is their life cycle amazing, the fact that they're so intimately tied into their environment more than almost any other fishes that we work with in the hobby is an amazing unlock for so many things we want to do as hobbyists, particularly those of us that are interested in more realistic, natural-style aquariums. Now, we're going to focus on the ones found in Africa for the purpose of this discussion. The commonly uh, found annual species are found in, the, in Africa are found in the African savanna. It's an ecosystem which essentially is a large tropical grassland. It receives its highest amount of seasonal rainfall during the summer. Now, the, the vegetation in the, in the savanna consists primarily of grasses and small, widely dispersed trees that don't create a closed canopy like you'd find in the rainforest or jungles. And this allows large amounts of sunlight to reach the ground. Obviously, sunlight impacts the temperature of the uh, environment, uh, the aquatic environment, as well as the very presence of water in the aquatic environment itself, evaporation, of course. And what's also important is the soil. Literally, the soils and sediments of these habitats where annual fishes are found is of such importance that it impacts every aspect of their existence. And it all starts with how it impacts the development of their embryos. These fishes inhabit often temporary pools, which are a very specific composition. Because of the way rain falls in these habitats, many of these, uh, many of these ecosystems fill and empty with the weather seasonally. And the very composition of the substrate of these pools has profound influence on the life cycle of these killifishes. Certain alkaline clay minerals, known as smectites, are necessary to provide suitable environmental conditions during the embryonic developmental phase of nothobranchius in the substrates of desiccated savanna pools. And nothobranchius is the dominant annual species found in Africa. As, as you might have know already and as you might guess. Now, the muddy layer in these pools has a low degree of permeability, which enables water to remain in the pools after the surrounding water table has receded. So think about that for a second. It's after the water has receded, there's still uh, water remaining in the pools, even though the, the, the local area is desiccating. That's kind of interesting. Now, without this essentially impermeable mud layer, these pools will quickly desiccate, completely evaporate to nothing. Appearance-wise, the substrate material is sort of a dark brown to black in color, and it typically forms a thick layer of soft mud on the bottom of the pools. And a layer of organic material aggregates, typically dead aquatic and terrestrial vegetation, accumulates on the bottom of these pools. However, it doesn't cover the entire bottom. Typically, as you'll see uh, when you look at photos of the region, uh, a lot of it will cover just part of the environment. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, even with all this rapidly decaying matter, the water in these pools remains alkaline. Why? Because of the high buffering capacity of the alkaline clay in the sediment. That is interesting to me. And it's, here's something that I find even more compelling. Nothobranchius almost never inhabit pools consisting of those visually orange-colored, laterite-rich soils like you would think are found all over Africa, which they are. But you'll find these pools all over the savanna, especially after periods of intense rain, and their substrates are generally composed of kaolinitic clay minerals, and as a result, they're highly acidic. 
Yet researchers have determined that these substrates are not suitable for these annual nothobranchius embryos to develop and survive during the dry periods. So as we've discussed many, many times, it's amazing how the characteristics of the aquatic habitats which our fishes are found in influence their life cycles. And of course, it's not limited to the annual killifishes of Africa. We find similar relationships between other types of African killifishes and their aquatic habitats. Such a case came to my attention not long ago when I was visiting a killifish forum on Facebook. One of the participants was discussing some new fishes that he obtained, and one was from a rare genus called Episimian. Weird because it's a fish that falls genetically halfway between the genus Epiplates and the genus Aphiosimian, two of the very popular um, genuses in the aquarium hobby. Even more interesting to me, of course, was the discussion that it's notoriously difficult to spawn and that it's only found in a couple places in the Congo region. In fact, the type description of the uh, uh, wow, I'm already botching the name, Episimian. <laughs> I don't know why it's so hard for me. Episimian crystallinaron. I totally butchered that name, sorry. It's one of just a handful of identified Episimian species. It's described as, quote, a large river five to six meters up to one meter deep. The river near Madaneo is typically um, G2 on 156. This is a, a technical measurement that scientists use up to one meter deep. They're talking about water flow and, and uh, bathyospheric measurements, stuff that's a little obscure for us. But anyway, basically what it's saying is that the water is fairly deep. And at both localities, the water is fast flowing with sandy bottom and no aquatic vegetation. Episimian species were found amongst overhanging terrestrial vegetation. Sounds fairly common to killifish. Good stuff. Really interesting. Now, reading through these type papers often gives you some good information of the ecology of the ecosystems from which our fishes come from. It's really interesting stuff. Sometimes it's intimidating. As you saw, I mouthed a whole bunch of mumbo-jumbo, part of which I don't really understand because that's a lot of mathematics and things that I'm not really good at. But there's some interesting things if you go deeper and try to understand this stuff. Even more interesting to me is that it's in a region known for, known for high levels of selenium in the soil. This is really interesting. Now, selenium is known to be nutritionally beneficial to animals and humans at a concentration of 0.05 to 0.10 parts per million. And selenium was mentioned by some of these hobbyists in this discussion as something that is needed, apparently, for these fishes to spawn properly and to remain healthy. Well, it makes sense. It's an essential component of many enzymes and proteins, and deficiencies are known to cause diseases in humans. One of its known health benefits for animals is that it plays a key role in immunity and, wait for it, reproductive functions. Boom! Yeah. So that helps with the difficult-to-breed part, right? I mean, if you're keeping it in water that doesn't have maybe an appropriate level of selenium in it, you might have trouble breeding the species, perhaps. Now, selenium occurs in soil associated with sulfide minerals, and it's found in plants at varying you know, concentrations, which are dictated by the pH, the moisture content, and other factors of the soil. As you might guess, higher concentrations of selenium are found in the plants, which occur in these regions where this fish is found. Interesting. So, I'm doubtful that we know the specific concentrations of selenium in many of the planted aquarium substrates on the market, and most hobbyists aren't... Uh, you know, just throwing in that readily available tropical Congo soil, you know, the one that you could pick up at any local fish store. You're not just throwing that into your tank, right? Because there isn't one. <laughs> On the other hand, how would we get more selenium into our tanks if we were trying to breed a killifish like this? Well, botanicals could be one way. Like, for example, the Brazil nut. And the Brazil nut is kind of known to us, isn't it? Because it comes from what? The monkey pot. The monkey pot has something to do with this. Yes, technically the monkey pot is a fruit capsule produced from the tree Lecithis 
Pisonius, a native to South America, most notably the Amazon region. Astute, particularly geeky, you know, listeners to the Tint podcast will recognize that name as a derivative of the family Lecithidae, which just happens to be the family in which the genus Cariniana is located. You know, the Cariniana pod, the fun little pod that we used to call the Savu pod, the one that we're currently out of stock with because it's hard to get stuff from Brazil right now. Yeah, we'll have it back, but don't worry. But yeah, interesting. This family has a lot of interesting botanical producing trees in it, doesn't it? It does. Hmm, Lecithidae. Okay, well, it's known in the ta- as the taxonomic family which contains the genus Bertholithia. The genus which contains the tree Bertholithia excelsa, the bearer of the Brazil nut. You know, the one that comes in that can of mixed nuts that no one really likes. The one that, you know, if you buy it on the shell, uh, in the shell, you have to use a freaking sledgehammer to open. That one, yeah. So, okay, went off way too far on talking about the damn monkey pod and the, you know, the Brazil nut. But let's think about this. Would it be possible to somehow utilize the monkey pot in a tank full of these fishes to perhaps impart some additional selenium into the water? Okay, this begs additional questions like how much, how rapidly, in what form would you administer this? Wouldn't it be easier to just grind up some Brazil nuts and toss them in or would the fruit capsule itself have a concentration of selenium? Would it even leach into the water? Couldn't you just add some selenium in the water if you could find it from a dietary supplement or something? Where the fuck am I going with this exercise? I mean, you can go crazy with this stuff, but the point is... I'm just sort of taking you out on the ledge here with me, demonstrating how the idea of utilizing botanicals to provide functional aesthetics is at the very least uh, a possibility to help solve some potential changes or, excuse me, challenges in the hobby. It's one of many interesting things that I think we can contemplate when talking about using botanicals in the aquarium world. Now, I was musing once again about the difficulties that some hobbyists had over the years incubating annual killifishes. And... You know, they use peat moss. That's a very commonly used thing in, in, the, in the aquarium hobby with killifish. They've been using peat moss to incubate fish eggs for generations. And I couldn't help but reflect back on the idea that, you know, peat moss is a more acidic substrate, right? And from what we've read in the research here, more acidic substrates tend to inhibit the development of nothobranchius embryos, at least according to some of these researchers. So perhaps incubating, you know, notho eggs in other materials like the aforementioned smectite and perhaps even some kind of a more basic mud would yield more consistent, more reliable results? I wonder, perhaps the frustrating to hobbyists anyway, the process of diapause could be overcome by incubating eggs in a material which more closely resembles the substrate in which they're found in nature, maybe? Now, it's complicated and I'm not really well versed on it, I have to admit. But diapause is defined as a phase of developmental arrest with an accompanying reduction in the metabolic rate of, of the embryo. Now, for killies adapted to life in these sort of ephemeral aquatic habitats, like savanna pools, diapause can occur during the embryonic development phase, and it, it helps them survive the dry season, and sometimes several dry seasons. Now, what's interesting about this is, you know, it's, it's sort of a suspended animation, so if you want to get science fiction by geeky, it's pretty cool. And it could help survive, you know, the fishes survive, you know, false starts where maybe there's a rain, uh, an unseasonable rain, and then it dries back out again. You don't want to kill the whole population. So there's a lot to be gained from understanding this whole process of diapause. Much has been discussed by really experienced killie people. And, you know, look, maybe I'm heading off into territory which I'm not really qualified nor knowledgeable enough to comment on, I have to admit. And many serious killie you know, keepers are probably rolling their eyes at me right now or maybe worse. But it does make you wonder a bit. I mean, could there be some merit to questioning this stuff? I mean, 
Why question a technique and the use of a material which experienced killifish fanciers have been utilizing for the better part of the century with pretty damn good results, right? Why do that? Well, I can't help but at least wonder why peat has been used in the inoculation media as the inoculation media of choice for killies for so long. And of course, they're saying, because it works, you fucking moron. I get it. But I mean, is it because of its physical moisture retention characteristics? Do they that resemble at least superficially those uh, of, of the substrates in which you know annual killifish eggs are found in the wild? Could it be because it's cheap and readily available? Because it works well enough, and that even though we may lose some eggs, enough get through, and that you know consistent results can be duplicated by the widest number of hobbyists because we kind of understand how to work with this stuff. Well, likely all of the above. However, could we use something that works even better? Is there something that works better? I mean, peat is pretty acidic, right? Like pH is 4.4 on the average. And we've already read about scientific work which indicated that many nothos are not found in ponds with highly acidic substrates. So uh, yeah, do the work, Feldman. Okay, I mean, I should, I need to. Only further research by you know self-appointed prognosticators like myself and other far more talented experienced you know, hobbyists and killie keepers like you will tell. Now, I suppose I at least need to explain my rationale for looking at things in the hobby like this more critically and, and, you know, from a different angle. I often think about my predication for questioning stuff that's long been held dear in the hobby, and I wonder why I think the way I do. I mean, it's not like I'm some well-informed genius or something, and I'm not some kind of rebel. I'm not trying to be a hellraiser. Well, occasionally I do, but that's not my point. I just tend to look at nature and ponder how we can more literally interpret her characteristics in our aquarium hobby experiences. We've done this with blackwater aquariums, we've done it with brackish aquariums, and the idea of facilitating and embracing stuff like you know biofilms, fungal growth, and detritus, seasonal water changes, seasonal you know variations in water level in our tank, you know that agapo stuff. And there's much merit to all of it, as we've seen. We just need to open our minds to the idea of rethinking some of the stuff that we've held dear for so long. Because that's how the hobby advances. As uncomfortable as the questioning of conventional ideas in the hobby might be to us, it's how we advance. Killifish are predict, you know, particularly fascinating to me because, as we mentioned already, they're so intimately tied to their environments. And it's not just that. It's the fact that they've long been a mystery. They're somewhat alluring to people, but they're a mystery to a lot of hobbyists. And we often ponder why they're not more you know, popular within the greater aquarium hobby. And I think part of it is because there is so much mystery. And the things we can learn from these connections between Killies and their environments are compelling and potentially game-changing in some instances. I think they might unlock the, the, you know, the more, what's the word I'm looking for? They might facilitate the more, uh, uh, more simple or more consistent reproduction of some fishes like in these families like Nothobranchius and so forth. And I'm confident enough and humble enough to open myself up to criticism, which I know I'll face from those who are far more knowledgeable than I. I'm sure I can get, I'm going to get a lot of nasty emails from, you know, killy people saying, what the hell are you talking about? And you're right. I, I'm not an expert, but I do like to pose these questions. And it's okay to accept that we might be way off because the humility and open-mindedness that we as hobbyists express while discussing what might be viewed as a controversial idea is a good thing that helps everybody. This may be the very best lesson from nature that we can actually receive so think about that. Look at things a little differently. Stay open-minded. Stay inquisitive. Stay resourceful. Stay bold. Stay diligent. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Melman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.